Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. It's been six months since this pandemic threw everything up into the air. And if politics slid into the background in the early days, they came roaring back this summer. The wee scandal for the liberals, a new leader for the conservatives, and election talk bubbling up as the fall session approaches. Let's get caught up and look ahead. And as is our custom here on the agenda, we introduce our guests from furthest away to closest to our studio. And with that, we welcome in Vancouver, British Columbia, Shachi Curl. Executive Director of the Nonpartisan Public Opinion Research Organization, the Angus Reid Institute. In Brooklyn, New York, Sean Spear, Professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and a Senior Fellow for Fiscal Policy at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. In Point Comfort, Quebec, Point Comfort as we might say in English, Jeffrey Simpson, former National Affairs Columnist with the Globe and Mail, now a Fellow at the University of Ottawa. And here in the provincial capital, journalist Vicky Mochama, whose work has appeared in The Walrus, Washington Post, and Toronto Star, among many others. It's good to see you four uh, back for our first program of this, our 15th season. And let's start by just putting some stats on the record here, because as of Labor Day weekend, Canada has recorded since since March more than 9,000 fatalities due to COVID-19. But let's break that down so we can compare ourselves with other countries. On a per capita basis, that's about 248 fatalities per million population, which compares us rather well with the United Kingdom, which is up at 624 deaths per million population, Sweden at 572, the United States at 566. However, many countries have also done better than us. Germany has only 112 fatalities per million population, Finland only 61, and South Korea fewer than seven fatalities per million population. So Shachi, let's start with you. You obviously survey the Canadian population on a frequent basis, and I'd like you to give us a sense about how Canadians feel their federal and provincial governments have done in fighting COVID-19. Look, through good times and bad, and let's face it, the numbers lately have been getting worse coast to coast, starting in British Columbia, where we're starting to see, I think, the beginnings of some are calling it a second wave, other call, others are just calling it really a slide back into new infections. Because we're seeing that in, in Ontario and Quebec as well. Despite this, what we know is that the pandemic has really been uh, something that's brought Canadians together and it's really had them rallying around the politicians and vice versa. So we are generally a pretty BS-proof population when it comes to judging our politicians. We look to them with a fairly cynical or jaded eye. The pandemic has changed that. So you see high, sustained high approval ratings for provincial premiers across the country, coast to coast. One notable exception is Alberta, but otherwise uh, provincial premiers are doing really well. And with the exception of a slide that is directly attributable to the Wee scandal, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has seen his numbers really rebound over the last year. Uh, and even post Wee scandal, because of the can- pandemic, his numbers are actually higher now than they were uh, in terms of approval 
than they were uh, right after last year's election at a time where he won, he won an election. Canadians were still annoyed with him. That uh, resolved itself to an extent. We'll see how long that lasts. Okay, thanks for that national overview. And now let's focus in some more. Jeffrey, you're in Quebec, so let's start there. If you look at the numbers out of the province of Quebec, they've had roughly twice as many people succumb to COVID-19 as those of us here in the province of Ontario. And yet, you know, many millions fewer population. I think they've got 9 million compared to our 14 and a half. What does that tell you about how well or not Quebec has managed to deal with this pandemic? There's a slight mystery to me, and you just put your finger on it, which is that Quebec has skewed the national numbers because their uh, infection rate and death rate is much higher than anywhere else. If you subtracted Quebec, I know this is, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bus, but I mean, if you subtracted Quebec from the national numbers, they'd be much, much lower. And the interesting thing is Monsieur Legault, the premier, despite his province having these high numbers relative to the rest of the country, and these have been widely reported in Quebec, there's no secret here, his popularity has come down, but it's still very high. And you might have thought, as Quebecers say, hey, how come our numbers are appreciably worse than Ontario, let alone the rest of the country? He would, he would suffer, but that's actually not what's happened. He's remained quite popular. What I like most about what's gone on at the governmental level, as an old veteran of federal provincial affairs, is that the two levels of government have by and large gotten along exceptionally well. And they've gone along interprovincially too. You mentioned Ontario and Quebec. Ontario sent equipment to Quebec when Quebec needed it. That was a very fraternal thing to do. We in Ottawa didn't much like it when Quebec closed the bridges from Ottawa to Quebec, but you know, that's over now. So instead of the usual bickering between the two levels of government, I think Canadians, back to the first points that were made, one of the reasons why they're giving credit to the governments is that they worked hard to get along. And as we see south of the border, the tensions between Washington and a number of the states have been endemic and polarizing, and that has not happened here. Well, let me put that to Vicky, because that is certainly one of the hugest distinctions between how our federal and provincial versus the American national and state governments. That's a huge difference there. And I wonder, Vicky, if one of the reasons uh, we are giving our politicians high marks is because compared to down south, we look like we're doing so much better. You think that's part of it? Yeah, I think people are willing to credit the Canadian federal and provincial governments for not necessarily falling victim to some falling victim to some of the bickering and back and forth that you've seen in the United States. But there has been a little bit of bickering. There has been a little bit of back and forth. And I think what that remains are still some of the gaps that the both federal and provincial governments need to look at and understand. For example, the challenge with migrant workers and the rate of infection there, the challenges in care homes and the families' concerns there. And then the airport, I think, still remains a, a critical one for people to ensure that the federal, provincial and municipal governments are dealing with the influx of people who are coming in or returning home. Sean, it is a bit of a Canadian value to think that as long as we're as long as we think we're doing better than the Americans, we feel pretty good about the world. Do you think that's at play here? I, I think it, de it definitely is, uh, Steve. Uh, you know as well as anyone um, that the Canadian public is inundated uh, with news and reporting from the United States. And so it's, it's just natural uh, for Canadians to evaluate the Canadian experience relative uh, to the acrimony and tumultuousness of the American response. Uh, I also think it's important to recognize um, that ideology goes out the window in the context of an emergency. 
our politicians have been responding to a twin crises, a public health crises and an economic crises for which there is really no playbook. And so I think it's um, logical um, that ideological and partisan difference have been minimized as, as our political class has sought to respond to this extraordinary crisis. Um, but as you said in your introduction, Steve, um, politics is starting to reemerge. And, and, and similarly, I think that's logical. Uh, we're beginning to see a nascent debate about what uh, the contours of a recovery plan ought to look like. Uh, and that is going to reflect um, ideological differences about the role of government, uh, about the limits of um, government action. Uh, and and I, I actually think we're uh, on the cusp of uh, what will no doubt be a tumultuous, but I think actually quite an exciting and dynamic debate uh, about uh, the future orientation of Canadian policymaking at the national level, but also at the subnational level. We will get to that later in our conversation, but I actually, I, I'd like to put a third leg on that stool, if you like, and Vicky, maybe I'll start with you on this. It's not just a, a health crisis and an economic crisis. There's been a racial reckoning across North America right now, the likes of which we haven't seen in 50 years. And, and I, you know, obviously starting with uh, George Floyd being caught, murdered on video in Minneapolis. Vicki, how much do you think our subsequent politics and developments have been influenced by that, by that third crisis that we're undergoing right now as well? I think on that front, the questions raised by the protesters around police oversight, police reform, and the abolition of a carceral state haven't necessarily been met by politicians. But I think there has been an understanding from the public that this moment and this crisis is being experienced diff differently by different races, by different ethnic groups, and by indigenous peoples and their nations. And so I think that awareness is much more broad than it might have been before. And so the moment of racial reckoning is happening at a more interpersonal level than you would than necessarily at a political level. I don't see politicians answering these questions about the funding or defunding of police. You don't necessarily see federal answers about systemic racism within the RCMP. But you do hear more questions, more concerns, and much more understanding on from individual Canadians about how race impacts our politics. I guess I should be careful with my language here, Shachi, before I get you to comment. Uh, the, the police officer in question in Minneapolis hasn't been found guilty of murder yet. Let, let's just say the killing of George Floyd, what many people certainly uh, thought was a murder. Uh, Shachi, do you want to weigh in on how the, the racial reckoning south of the border has affected our politics and our society here? I can't say as yet, based on the data that we're seeing, that it is necessarily affecting our politics. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. But Canadians are engaged on this issue. They're paying attention. They are connecting the dots. And what's really interesting is even though they themselves may be reporting that their own interactions with police, for the large part, again, this is so much depending on where you live, and uh, which level of police you're dealing with. Uh, is it your local police? Is it city police? Is it the RCMP? Regardless, when we talk to Canadians about this issue, across the board, they will generally say, look, my interactions have been okay, but I perceive a major problem in the way police are dealing with people of color, with black people, with indigenous people. 
So there is an engagement, there is an awareness, and there is a naming of the problem and an identification of the problem. Where Canadians are in terms of what do we do next? Who's accountable? Who, sh who should be accountable? Should there be defunding? What should the future of policing and, and public interaction look like? I think those are things that everyone is still working through as they as they come to terms with what's been happening both south of the border but also here in Canada and and I would just point out this doesn't start with George Floyd Steve this this goes back so far and there are so many examples of it over time so many Canadian instances caught on camera as well particularly in relation to our indigenous populations so this is something that Canadians are starting to come to terms with, but they don't necessarily have clear answers on or are indicating that this is where they want their policymakers to go. Jeffrey Simpson, what would you add to that? I would, I would add that I would agree. Uh, we have not had among our political parties, nor between the federal and provincial governments, polarized arguments about this. I'm not aware of any political people People here, I stand to be corrected, who've tried to make hay out of the two sides of the argument that we see in the United States, uh, so that we haven't had polarization on the issue. Is there more awareness? Yes. Uh, defunding of the police is overwhelmingly rejected in the United States, and if it was ever put in Canada, it would be overwhelmingly rejected here. Reform of the police, yes. Defunding makes almost no sense. Um, there is a difference in terms of sheer numbers because the share of the Canadian population that is black, according to Statistics Canada in 2016, was 3.6%, where it's about 10% in the United States. The Indigenous issue here has a salience that it does not have in the United States. Uh, it's true in the United States people are talking about black, uh, or I should say minority groups, and, uh, and um, Native people, as they call them there. Uh, but here, the indigenous element, which has a whole dimension to it that doesn't affect the blacks in Canada, is much, much more salient and has led to things like the, the taking away of the names or the renaming of uh, institutions and structures in Canada, which 10 years ago would not have been part of our discourse. Sean, just before I get you to weigh in on this, maybe I should, I should um, preface it by saying Jeffrey's quite right that we haven't had the polarization among our political class here as they have in the United States. But there was a moment the other day on Twitter when the leader of the New Democrats uh, tweeted that uh, the poor woman who was suffering from mental health issues in Toronto and who barricaded herself on a balcony and then tried to leap to another balcony missed and leapt to her death. Uh, Jagmeet Singh or somebody on his behalf tweeted that woman would still be alive if not for the intervention of the Toronto police, which you know, immediately launched a Twitter um, explosion saying that he had overreached and was playing politics with all of this. There's a lot to, to, to make sense of all there, but perhaps you could weigh in on all of that. Well, I, I think it's a good example, Steve, of our political class uh, struggling to bring expression uh, to this set of issues uh, in, in the realm of, of politics. Uh, we've seen um, uh, growing um, cases of uh, protesters um, uh, targeting um, statues and other um, other manifestations of uh, Canadian history. Uh, I think we're increasingly seeing um, pushback against those um, developments on the political right. 
Uh, it's an issue, for instance, that Aaron O'Toole seems to have um, uh, seems keen to champion in his uh, new role as leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, obviously, these are complex and multifaceted issues for which there are no simple answers. But I, I would emphasize um, that this social angst is occurring against the backdrop of precipitous uh, economic contraction uh, and record joblessness. Uh, and it seems to me, uh, well, these problems will hardly be solved by more economic growth. Uh, I think uh, a return, the restoration of economic growth and economic activity uh, is a critical ingredient to lowering the, the temperatures um, uh, in, in our countries. You know, uh, George Will likes to say, Steve, that the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth isn't 1%, it's 50%. Uh, and, and I think um, this is only one of the reasons why we're seeing our policymakers at the national level and the subnational level start to shift their thinking uh, from stabilizing the economy and addressing the immediate public health uh, dimensions of the coronavirus and focusing more on um, restoring economic activity and getting people back to work. George Will is a smart guy who could always do math. There's no doubt about that. Well, speaking of math, let's bring some polling up here, and I'm going to get you folks to comment on this. Uh, these have been astonishingly cataclysmic times for our world and our country, and yet look at the public opinion polling when you ask people uh, what they think of the federal parties uh, as currently constituted in the House of Commons. Shall we bring these up, Sheldon? Here we go. Okay, current party support. These are Angus Reid numbers. Shot you, these are your numbers. And let's go through. Here's, here's where we are right now. Liberals, 35%. Conservatives, 35%. NDP at 17 Bloc Québécois at 7 And the Greens at 4 Now, if you compare those numbers today to where we were on Election Day last October... The Liberals are literally up less than two points. The Conservatives are literally up about a point. The NDP are down about a point. The Bloc are, you know, down about a half a point. And the Greens are down about two and a half points. And Shachi, I want to know, how is it possible in these remarkably tumultuous times that there's so little dynamism in the political polling these days? So delicious. Where do you want me to start, Steve? So At the beginning? All, this is a massive uh, survey that we did. Uh, more than 5,000 Canadians interviewed, surveyed uh, in the last week of uh, August, really in the days right after Mr. O'Toole's uh, ascension as Conservative Party leader. So what you're seeing is a few things. Yes, in essence, if you go back 11 months, the numbers look remarkably consistent. But what this represents since the beginning of May is actually a slight drop for the Liberals. Uh, they've largely stabilized uh, with, with perhaps a few flesh wounds, but nothing fatal coming out of the wee scandal. But also a bump of a handful of points for the Conservatives with a new leader uh, who is now having to do the work of, re, of attempting to reappeal to voters that this party has uh, in the last two, three years had very difficult times getting traction with. So what do you hear Aaron O'Toole talking about immediately in the wee hours right after his, uh, his win uh, as leader? He says, if you live in a city, the Conservative Party is here for you. If you're a woman, the Conservative Party is here for you. If you are a person of color or an immigrant, you have a home in the party. 
these are messages that what we would call centrists or swing voters have not been hearing from conservative leadership in a while. And so that's been put down very uh, forcefully by Aaron O'Toole, who's also tried to move to quelch some of the issues around social values. So he's saying, look, I'm pro-choice. I'm, I'm, I don't have an issue with same-sex marriage. I'd march in a pride parade, et cetera, et cetera. Why is he doing those things? Because the party, if it wants to win the next election, needs to win in Ontario, where it's currently sitting seven points back from the Liberals, needs mm -hmm. to win in cities where it is significantly trailing the Liberal Party and needs to win with women. And right now there is something like a 12-point gap between women voters in terms of whether they would choose Justin Trudeau or Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. And ultimately what we note with all of this in the mix is that left of center voters, if they think the conservatives are at uh, within striking distance of forming government, will re-coalesce under the liberals and back under the big red tent to prevent the conservatives from winning. Erno Tool needs to be able to say, hey, we've got a big tent too where everyone's welcome. And he needs to be able to convince people of that. He's saying it, we have to now watch to see if he's got the room to grow and he can make the case. And he put a social media video up yesterday on Labor Day, which was probably the most pro-labor, pro-union uh, statement that I've ever seen any conservative leader at any level of government give, uh, you know, in decades, to be sure. I mean, it was really quite something. Jeffrey, uh, if you're the prime minister right now, you've got a throne speech coming up this fall. <laughs> do, do you secretly or maybe not so secretly want to lose this throne speech, given the competitive nature you find yourself in the, in the polling today? I don't think you want to lose it on the throne speech. Uh, throne speeches are just uh, declarations of intentions. Um, I think the budget is going to be far more consequential. And I don't know when the budget will be. I have a fairly good idea of its general direction, not close to the government anymore, but you can just read the feelings. They're going to have a budget that is extremely expansionist. Uh, they're going to spend a lot of money on social programs, whether it's pharmacies or pharmacare or income support, they're going to have all kinds of green subsidies. I think the Liberals have decided that the Conservatives have 30 to 35 percent of the election, come rain or shine. You can have a poor leader like the previous one, you can have a better leader, they're in 30 or 35 percent. And we can only form a government with a majority if we eat into the Greens, Black Québécois, and the NDP. And that requires tilting far to the left. The second point I'd make to underscore that is that when Mr. Morneau was shown the door, I mean, he resigned because you could see what was happening to him. He had no support in the cabinet. The liberals have no business liberals anymore. The liberal cabinets in the past, going back to Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien, always had bending liberals and business liberals. This government has no business liberals. They're all spending liberals, every one of them, including the prime minister. So the next budget is going to be extremely expansionist. Money is going to be spent left, right, and center. And it's at that point that they'll use the skills that we've heard today from our polling friends as to whether they should go for an election or not. The last point I'd make is elections are very unpredictable. Mr. Trudeau ought to know that because he, the first time he won, he started the campaign in third place, and Tom Mulcair was measuring the drapes at 24 Sussex Drive, and the Liberals won the election. Last time, they sunk during the campaign. By the way, I think it's interesting that the polling numbers show the Liberals ahead by 12 points among women, but if they're even with the Conservatives overall, 
they got to be about 10 or 12 points behind among men. And that's a bit of a problem for the liberals. It's hard to form a majority when you're 12 points behind among men. Sean, I'd ask you to weigh in on the fortunes or the potential fortunes of the Conservatives at the moment in as much as you've got the Wee scandal, which admittedly is out of the headlines right now, but it certainly has a place in the public consciousness. Having said that, Aaron O'Toole's barely got his feet wet as the leader. Uh, How concerned would you be about pulling down the government's throne speech knowing that you've got a guy in his literally first months as leader at the helm right now? Well, he's, he's certainly on a steep learning curve, uh, Steve, given the prospect or potential for uh, an election campaign uh, mere weeks away. Uh, to your question um, to, to Jeffrey about whether Mr. Trudeau and his team secretly would like an election, I, I think the answer is yes. The, the, the one um, um, entity not on Satchi's, um, um, polling, Satchi's polling figures is Donald Trump, uh, who is uh, deeply unpopular with the Canadian public. And I think Mr. Trudeau's team would actually like the prospect of running a parallel campaign in Canada uh, while the U.S. presidential election um, slumps on. Um, the, Mr. Trump will be counted on to say outrageous things. Um, and Mr. O'Toole would be forced to spend most of the campaign uh, responding to questions about Mr. Trump and the extent to which his party and his vision um, uh, converges or diverges uh, with the polarizing president. The other reason why I think uh, that the liberals would like a campaign is if uh, they're brought back with the majority, they'll be able to put the stick in the spokes of the the WE investigation. The only reason we've gotten as far as we have, of course, is because um, opposition members presently make up a majority of the members on uh, the committees investigating uh, the the grant to to the WE charity. Uh, Prorogation was a short-term attempt to slow that process down a majority, a new majority mandate uh, would be what the liberals need to shut it down. Uh, and so I think all opposition leaders, including Mr. O'Toole, face a difficult question uh, in how they ultimately vote on the speech from the throne and, and perhaps a federal budget. I think there'll be plenty there uh, for the opposition, for the conservatives uh, to oppose and reject. I think uh, mo- more pressure will be on Mr. Singh uh, and whether the new Democratic Party is prepared to support the liberals, given the likelihood, as Jeffrey says, that the speech from the throne and the, and the budget uh, will advance several uh, progressive priorities. Uh, is that enough to secure NDP support um, or, or not, I think, will be the major question uh, in, in, the, in the upcoming parliamentary session. And let me get Vicky to pick up the story there on the social democratic part of the uh, of the political ledger. And to that end, Vicky, um, maybe I can ask you to react to it in this respect. You know, for the last two Democratic presidential nomination races, a self-declared septuagenarian socialist has really been right there almost at the finish line, running extremely competitively. Senator, And if you look at the current Democratic Party, you know, you've got, I guess they call themselves the squad, led by uh, AOC, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York, you know, who's a self-declared socialist and, and unapologetically arguing for a much larger role for government. They are very popular in some parts of the United States right now in a way that the NDP just is not in Canada. Uh, I guess the question is, how does the NDP maybe try to benefit from some of that radicalism happening in the United States right now? Well, I think the question really for Jagmeet Singh is, has he been able to carry the momentum of his win into 
his role as leader of the party. And I don't think we've necessarily seen that from him. And part of it is, you know, the 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 lack of cash that they have as a party. And so the idea of an election for them, I think, is not necessarily, you know, one they want to answer and they don't want to head into an election. But, you know, it's also the fact that they're unwilling to be, you know, unabashed supporters of labor efforts, of rights for, for workers, um, of speaking in the language of socialism. Part of the challenge of that is that the American socialists are asking for some of the things Canada already has. They're asking for universal health care. They're asking for expanded sick leave. They're asking for things that a lot of Canadians, depending on where you are in the country, already have. So what does that kind of socialism that is popular in the NDP amongst young women who largely support the NDP, where is that going to come from for Jagmeet Singh? How is he going to articulate that? And so I think that's really the question for the NDP, the Liberals, and the Conservatives. In that mess video message from Aaron O'Toole on Labor Day, he was speaking about class. And you know, all three of them have backed down off the questions of race, but I think are going to spend the next few months, election or no, talking about the class impact that this uh, pandemic has had and how that has affected different people depending on where you are. They're possibly going to go after the middle class, but I think the liberals with the teases that they've put out about the budget are maybe returning to Justin Trudeau's attempts at that fairness agenda, at going after the wealthy, at expanding social programs, and are maybe going to now listen to what the NDP have to say about questions around a universal basic income, expanded transit supports, green tax credits, all of those things. So I think for Jagmeet Singh, he's always pulled back on some of the uh, NDP's agenda, but now has a window and an opportunity to be a little bit more aggressive and more vociferous in his support of what the NDP has to offer. Gotcha. Uh, less than five minutes to go, folks. Let me put one more thing on the table here and see if I can get everybody to comment on it. Uh, sadly, just briefly, because we're running out of time. Uh, Sheldon, let's bring these stats up, shall we? What do Canadians care about? Uh, you're not going to be shocked to hear number one on that list, 35% of the people identified the response to COVID-19. But if you look at number two, which is health care at 32%, you put them together, that's basically two-thirds of Canadians who say COVID-19 slash health is top of mind right now. Three in 10 identify climate change, almost three in 10 the economy. Government spending and deficit, less than a quarter of the people identified that as an issue. Income inequality is down to just over two in 10. Corruption a little under 2 in 10, jobs under 2 in 10, public safety 1 in 10. Shachi, uh, <laughs> I need a smart pollster here to tell me what that ranking suggests about Canadians' priorities at the moment. Well, again, it's all about digging beneath those top line numbers, Steve. So if anyone really wants to dig in, they can actually go to angusreed.org and, and read all the data, and I encourage you to do that. So with the time we have, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, uh, Look for the Trudeau government to really almost go back to the future on this or go back to the past. They are going to run the playbook from the early 80s. Not all of us were around for it. I think Jeffrey Simpson was, and I say that with great respect uh, because he is a man of experience. But really where uh, the then former Trudeau liberals, the Pierre Trudeau liberals, really looked to uh, bridging the, yeah, the inequality, the income gap, uh, trying to get people into affordable and accessible housing, look for them to talk about a lot of those things because those are issues against the backdrop of a pandemic that have really been revealed, right? So we're, we're learning more about just how precarious work is for people, just how high the cost of living is for people doing precarious work. Now, when you look at who cares about what, uh, absolutely, if you're a woman, if you are left of center in this country, 
Uh, pandemic response healthcare at the top of the list. If you are an older man, 55 plus, living in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Northern Manitoba, parts of Ontario, you are much more occupied with the deficit and spending. But one last point on deficit and government spending. Canadians today are, are less exercised about this than say they were, uh, you know, uh, when our deficit was far, far smaller. So we're looking at a budget deficit of $343 billion. You go back a year and a half when this was an issue we were talking about more, uh, and the budget deficit was something like $19 billion. So this is all about how these issues are introduced into the public discourse. We've heard Aaron O'Toole trying to talk about it, talking about his timeline to pay it down. Uh, and really the only caveat is Canadians will focus on, on issues of deficit when uh, they are exercised and concerned about it. Right now, they're more exercised and concerned particularly if they're transitioning off of CERB or dealing uh, in precarious industry work, where the next paycheck is going to come from, how they're going to get their kids back to school, what's going on with their elderly parents. Okay, I've got about 45 seconds left for each of you to weigh in on. And, and uh, Jeffrey, let me go to you first. The guy who currently has the job you used to have, namely the best real estate in the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne, uh, says uh, the government's uh, cleverness has been not only convincing people that they can get something for nothing, but that they can get everything for nothing. Do you think he's onto something here? Uh, I, I don't comment on what other journalists said when <laughs> I was a journalist. I'm not going to comment now. I'd simply say I don't think anybody can understand what $343 billion deficit is. I mean, nobody's ever seen anything like that in their entire lives, so they can't actually relate to it. Uh, Maybe what's happening. No, I, I think that the COVID situation, and we talked at the beginning of our discussion about how governments were generally seen to have done this well. People are not exercised by the deficit because they haven't had to pay the bills. At some point, the bills will come due because interest rates will rise or the rating agencies will put the Canada on notice or the Bank of Canada will enter the fray and not continue to print the kind of money it has. And at that point, people will begin to say, hey, this can't go on. I think we'll be a decade trying to climb out of this deficit situation. I don't think it's going to come easy, and that's going to be a long, difficult slog. Vicky, can you be a conservative today and campaign on reducing debt and deficit? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's ways it could work, but I'd love to see how that looks for generations like mine, millennials, who have only dealt with declining economies, whether from the global financial crisis or heading into you know, your adulthood where jobs were less of a certainty, where housing only expanded in cost. And so for conservatives to argue on government spending less to support individuals, they'd really have to figure out how to toe that fine line between the challenges people have had for the last 15 to 20 years trying to create lifestyles and create families as well as what the government can do and is able to do. Sean, you get the last word. How do conservatives, which like debt and deficit as their issues, how do they campaign on those today? I, I agree with Vicky. It's a challenge. Um, that's for sure. But I would say the opposite is true as, as well, Steve. I, I think Mr. Trudeau, Ms. Freeland, uh, if they're interpreting um, a wide interest on the part of the Canadian public for a radical transformation of government, I, I think they may be wrong. I, I think a message of a return to normalcy uh, may be as potent as one for reconceptualizing government re re and reconceptualizing its role in the economy. And ultimately, I think these will be 
uh, the, the, the source of a, of a big ideological intellectual conflict uh, whenever the next election occurs. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Great discussion. Shachi Curl, Jeffrey Simpson, Sean Spear, Vicky Mochama. It's really great of all of you to join us on this first program of our 15th season here on the agenda. Uh, all good wishes to all of you and stay safe, okay? Thanks, Thank Steve. you. Thank you, Steve. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.